0: We've probably changed that into a bit of a tuner car, for those that know. It's certainly a bit of a sleeper. Say a 520 horsepower model, you just reflash it and you add 150 horsepower. You add some ethanol to it, you add another 100 horsepower. You change the turbos and the stock internals and engine will do 1,000
1: horsepower. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In podcast, I'm Andre your host and in this episode we're joined by Mitch and John from Dino Spectrum. Dino Spectrum is a company that specialises in offering tuning solutions for late model Audi vehicles. John and Mitch's specific skill sets are really focused on reverse engineering of factory engine management systems which is a very specific and unique skill set. John and Mitch also both come from Cobb originally, that's where they actually met and both have had a fairly long history in the automotive industry. Uh, John specifically cut his teeth on the early Mitsubishi and Subaru vehicles specifically around open source, learning how to reverse engineer, decompile and modify the factory code in those ECUs specifically, adding his own advanced features that never existed in that factory. Engine management system. Uh, much on the other hand, comes from uh, companies such as AMS Performance, who are no stranger to tuning uh, both factory and aftermarket engine management systems. He then went on to Cobb, where he developed uh, much of Cobb's Porsche platform for reflashing Porsche vehicles. Now, there's always the question that comes up here about when it's right to move from a factory engine management system to an aftermarket standalone. We dive into this question in a bit more detail with Mitch and John but this in my opinion is becoming a more and more difficult question to answer and specifically we dive into the product that Mitch and John have developed for the Audi R8 and Lamborghini Huracan platform and this really sounds like it is a rival to the big name players in the aftermarket standalone industry here on that platform, specifically both Motec as well as Cybex. Anyway I don't want to spoil the entire interview for you so we'll get into that shortly but first for those who are fresh to the podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school we specialise in teaching people how to tune both factory and aftermarket engine management systems. We also cover performance engine building, wiring, race car setup, driver education and data analysis just to name a few of our topics. A relevant of course to today's topic, we're talking about engine tuning and specifically here reflashing factory engine management systems and we've got a range of courses that cover the information you need if you want to learn how to do exactly this. I'd suggest starting with our EFI Tuning Fundamentals course. As its name implies, this teaches you the fundamentals of aftermarket and factory engine management. Essentially how the ECU works, how fuel injection works, what we're trying to do when we're tuning the fuel tables, the ignition tables etc. Once you've got that basic grounding we also have our understanding air fuel ratio course will teach you what air fuel ratio is, why it matters. It will give you some safe starting air fuel ratios for a range of different engines so you can get up and running with no danger of doing any damage and then most importantly we'll teach you how to test and find the optimal air fuel ratio for your particular application and lastly dealing with reflashing, we have our practical reflash tuning course and this will teach you how to reflash on any tuning platform, open source or uh, commercial, it doesn't matter, also doesn't matter what type of vehicle you are tuning and we know that when it comes to tuning your first car, it can be a bit daunting knowing what to do first and what order to progress. But to break it down and make it simple, we've developed the HPA six step process and by doing this, each of those individual steps is called cool and easy to complete in no time. You've got an optimally tuned engine giving great power, great torque, great drivability but most importantly great engine reliability. You can find all of those courses at com forward slash courses, we will put a link in the show notes to those 3 specific courses and as a HPA tuned in podcast listener, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75, that'll get you $75 off the purchase of your very first course. Alright enough with our introduction, let's get into our interview now. All right, John and Mitch, welcome to the Tuned In Podcast, thanks for joining us and I think probably the best place to get started is finding out a little bit about your backgrounds and and how you got involved with tuning, reverse engineering etc. Maybe Mitch if we just start with you, can you give us your sort of backstory?
2: I started doing um, calibration and reverse engineering, well calibration I've been doing for about 20 years. I started when I was around 20. And I slowly started with kind of standalones like AEMs. Um, A lot of it was self-taught. You know, there was no uh, HP Academy. From there, I just kind of kept working and kept learning things, uh, new systems. Then through that, stock ECUs kind of started to evolve. And more and more folks were starting to use stock ECUs uh, as tuning mechanisms. So started doing that, Ecutech, uh, open source stuff. I really did start with a lot of the uh, Mitsubishi Evo and uh, Subaru WRX and STI. And then through that, you know, I've done quite a bit of stuff. Uh, it was a calibrator at AMS Performance. For those that don't know, AMS has done a lot of amazing things. Big Power, Evos, you know, DSMs to the GTRs to now, you know, the V10, Lamborghinis and, and R8s. But, um, was a calibrator there alongside Chris Chris Black and Martin Musial. Learned a lot there. I was doing some reverse engineering there on the Porsche platform mostly on the weekends just because nobody could really tell us how to tune a European car on the stock ECU. That's probably where a lot of this kind of started, but from there uh, I was hired by Cobb to do some customer calibration, but that quickly turned into reverse engineering so it turned into the kind of the lead engineer for the um, porsche platform uh, the porsche access port so that was kind of you know i started with that you know, did that for many years and then uh started this you know with with john so uh well john started it but uh, i joined in later we had worked together at cobb we'd had some small overlap but not a lot of interaction together until after we had actually left
1: Okay, uh, a bunch of, of interesting stuff there I want to go back and dive into. But before we do that, let's just bring John in and, and John... I understand your path in this journey has been quite unusual because, as I understand, you trained and worked as a doctor, which is probably about as far removed from engine tuning and reverse engineering as you can get. So really interested to, to learn how that came about and, and, more importantly, how you made that pivot towards the reverse engineering and engine tuning side of things.
0: My story started in the 80s as a child that enjoyed electronics and computing. and I was encouraged what turned out ultimately unwisely into a career in medicine by various influences, teachers, and so on, and ended up spending the 90s training to be a doctor. I didn't really discover cars until I'd graduated and you know started to pay off a little bit of debt and got a job and then happened across the Subaru Impreza Turbo. And at that point, I very quickly found that it wasn't fast enough. So I had then picked up my electronics again and started making fuel cup defenders, analog ones. Then I picked up a microcontroller and started you know, making them more sophisticated and then made an electronic boost controller. And I was really enjoying this stuff, playing around in my own car and, and getting some good results. Then Ecutech in 2002 launched their first product and we started talking and I really wanted their product just so I could calibrate the ECU myself. But they encouraged me into making it a commercial thing. So I went to see them, got some training, took the product away, worked on my own car and developed it. And although I'd just become a partner in a in a medical practice after nine years of, of training, I started running a business on the side tuning Subarus in my evenings and weekends. That grew pretty quickly. I didn't have a dyno, I didn't have premises or anything like that. But it soon became very obvious that the, this business could expand into that. And it's at that point, I made a crucial mistake by not taking that route. I continued in medicine because, you know, people say you've put all this effort into this career, you can't throw it away. But uh, although I functioned in that career, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't love it. Okay. And, you know, that that kept going.
1: There's got to be. I'm just interested to dive into that a little bit more. There's, there's. It sounds like there's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy sort of going on there, as you mentioned. You know, you've invested so much time and undoubtedly a huge amount of money in that medical career. So, I'm guessing, obviously not a doctor, but I'm guessing that medicine can be a very lucrative field, particularly once you've you've paid off all of your loans. So there's this trade-off here, you know, yes, I can make some money, but this is definitely not a passion of mine anymore. I'm not, not really enjoying it versus looking at what the automotive uh, angle and the enjoyment you're getting out of that could, could potentially give you. Is that where you're sort of making that decision?
0: Yes, you're absolutely right about the sunk cost. And what happened subsequently is that I'd become a partner in a in a practice. I was running that, but from time to time, I would take on a new project. So the the Subaru tuning business, I let come to an end for a few years. I didn't do much. And then, although I say I didn't do much, I actually got through, I think, 10 different types of turbo, uh, five different transmissions in my Subaru because I kept breaking them. Tried a uh, 2.3 or 2.5, various forged and other engines to try and get more power. So the bug never left me. And then I changed the Mitsubishi Evo. And uh, all the lessons I'd learned tuning the Subaru, suddenly I was rewarded with reliability and more performance with the Evo. But that was at the time when open source came out and you could suddenly flash the ECU and you had full access to its contents, but nobody had defined the maps. The logging was acceptable, but slow, a factual protocol. So I started disassembling the ECU Changed the logging from, what, 100 items a second to over 4,000, added some real-time tuning, made it speed density, changed the boost control, all that sort of thing.
1: You say sort of all that sort of thing and kind of just gloss over that like that's just something we can do in our sleep. But you've just talked about some pretty deep stuff here, and I just want to go back and Mitch, I'm not forgetting about you, we'll come back to you as well. You've actually mentioned uh, some some of the same stuff here with with open source. And I mean essentially when I started doing factory engine management, it sounds like we kind of followed, uh, at least at the start, a, a fairly similar path in that Subaru and Mitsubishi was also my bread and butter and that, that open source uh Software that was available, you know, that that's what we were doing as well. So, for for those who aren't aware, uh, John, can you just first of all define what what do you mean by open source? What what is that? Uh,
0: the definition's a bit vague because what people mean is different. But whilst the open source really means that the code is available and published for free on the internet, usually on a now repository like GitHub, so that people can collaborate and share it. Anyone can run it, anyone can see how it works, anyone can use it to learn from, develop, even make into commercial products, depending on the license. So Tactrix made um, a flasher and a cable that allowed Mitsubishi Evos and Subarus to be reprogrammed, and they added some table definitions, and the community grew up around them, which was very vibrant. So people started to, you know, some of these you can read out. So they started reading out their Mitsubishi Evo maps and seeing that their timing tables are full of eight degrees everywhere, uh, for example. And they started to realize that they needed to, to use their enthusiasm and turn it into skill to, to tune themselves. And I think that improved the, the commercial tuners as well because they had to up their game a little bit because their work could sometimes be inspected or logged. So that that was the open source. What wasn't open source with TATRIX and hasn't been to my understanding since is the actual flashing isn't. And I don't, there's one or two people that do publish their actual flashing code, but mostly by open source people mean you can read and write the contents of the ECU using relatively cheap equipment and then you can alter it freely
1: yourself. Yeah, I, I think as you mentioned, there's obviously various definitions. I, I always take it as the open is essentially free or very cheaply available software and in this case the Tactrix hardware that we need is the interface between our ECU and the OBD2 port. Uh, Last time I checked I I think that's maybe under a couple of hundred dollars US so in the big scheme of things really, really cheap. And then the flip side of this is we've got commercially available software and you've both mentioned Ecutech and Cobb just as a couple of examples. There's obviously dozens if not hundreds of manufacturers out there where you're paying for... uh, the software and hardware that you're using, you're also paying potentially a licence fee for every vehicle you tune and obviously that's how the commercial software uh, companies make it into a viable business. Now on the open source front, we've got this basically this uh, community of enthusiasts that are developing the product and finding these definitions and before we we go further with this, because this can be problematic at least in my experience, uh, can, can Mitch maybe explain to us what does that term definition actually mean and what what why is that important when we download that raw binary file out of the ECU what are we actually faced with what's the definition help us with
2: yeah so basically what you're looking for is you know if you're downloading just a raw binary you don't you're du- you're downloading multiple parts of the ECU parts of program code parts of the calibration data in order to make functional changes you have to be able to define all parts of what's in there. You know, you need to be able to define what is uh, the program code, and also more importantly, how does that program code work? And you know, ingrained within that program code is usually the calibration data. So you need to also be able to define the tables that you need to make changes to, say, ignition timing or lambda target lambda idle control tables, etc. All those need to be defined, and they need to be correct. You know, it's actually Quite easy to make mistakes in those definitions as you're taking basically hexadecimal and turning it into something that needs to be human readable and human editable. So it takes good care to to make good definition files, and in the fact that you know you need to modify those and making those incorrectly and, and flashing them back onto an ECU can cause damage uh, to the engine, to the ECU, etc.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think probably it's important to sort of mention. I don't I don't have exact numbers here. My guess is probably somewhere in the region of maybe ninety to ninety five percent of tuners that are relying on open source reflashing software. And again, for the moment, let's just continue on the Subaru slash Mitsubishi platforms. Are probably relying on definitions that other people are creating. And don't have the capability to actually modify or find their own own maps. So th- there's two very different skills here. Now, at the start of my career, I, I was in in that situation, and because here in New Zealand we predominantly get the Japanese domestic market models for both Subaru and Mitsubishi. And the subtle but important differences often between the JDM and the US domestic market models in terms of their definitions, because of course the dominant market is USDM and that's where that user base is, the open source user base or community, the definitions as I saw it for the USDM models were usually pretty thorough and, and quite complete. And for a lot of the JDM models there were whole maps missing, maybe we didn't have a, a boost target map or a wastegate duty cycle map or something like that or often the definitions would be scrambled so you sort of go into an ignition map and the axes would be just absolute garbage or the numbers just clearly you looked at them and they didn't make sense. So on, on that front, what's the, the jump in skill set required to go from actually just using a, a provided definition file to actually finding these maps, reverse engineering how the EC works and and finding your own?
0: There's a couple of ways to do it, and the way that most people do it is through pattern recognition. And some of them then make, if, if they don't, for example, have any form of factory definition, they might be able to log something like ignition timing, and then they see things that look like ignition maps, uh, or somebody else has told them that are oh, they start altering them, log the car. That can work if you've got a high and a low octane ignition map, an ignition map for where the you know, the valve time isn't working or something like that. But it falls over when you have multiple versions. So, for example, just on one engine on an Audi, there are 31 software versions, and that's just the up-to-date software versions. Some of those versions each have within them eight or ten uh, updates over a number of years. And often what happens is that uh, when the code is changed, the code is re recompiled even with small changes and the maps can move around. Uh, They can change order. They can change size. They can change shape. And that's when pattern recognition and experimentation really is quite risky. So for example, some of our platforms have say 96 ignition tables. And it's a bit of a nightmare for the tuner to know which one to alter. So you could try altering them all. But what if they've got different contents? You you're implying and you're guessing. And so that's where disassembly comes in. And that's what I was really able to contribute to open source on the Evo 9. In the UK, I had a effectively a JDM EVO nine. And I started disassembling it to improve the map definitions. So I could give some certainty about the way things worked because I was looking at the code. And that that's the crucial change that we've continued for you know 15 years since then and what we hope differentiates the sort of thing we do because we, we understand the nuts and bolts behind the data because we're looking at the code.
1: If I'm understanding what you just said there correctly, rather than just the pattern recognition using software, yeah, that, that looks like a map. We'll dive into that. It, it's an ignition map, but we don't know. Uh, maybe we've got, as you said, you know, 30 plus, 96 plus ignition maps, or whatever it may be. We don't know how, when, and why the ECU may use this map over this other map. Instead of just relying on that pattern recognition, you're actually going deep into how the ECU code works, basically, the logic flow of how the ECU processes inputs and decides which table to use at any particular time. Is that in a nutshell? Have I got that about correct?
0: Yes, and I'll use any available data and experimentation. But if it takes me a month to work through 96 ignition tables so that I can give the tuner two or three and tell them definitively when they work and tell them which ones they have to adjust, uh, that's what I'll do because I, I don't try and take on lots of models. I'll spend you know three years on one sort of series of ECUs plus um, whereas so I can specialize and, and offer that sort of detail that people want. And that really, really helps the tune a workload. It helps them to tune it more like a standalone because they, they've got some, some certainty in what they are doing.
1: So on, on that note there, I don't know if the example you gave is, is actually sort of a set in stone one, but 96 ignition maps and you just sort of mentioned that the ECU may use three of them and you know under what circumstances uh, it, it does use those three. Now, if that's the actual situation, it wasn't just sort of an anecdotal number that you gave me, Why does the ECU have 93 other maps in there that it's not using? that's, That's always interested me.
0: They can be used. Usually what happens is you get a couple of variants for fuel octane. So by the coding in the car, which can be coded in its EEPROM or emulated EEPROM for different regions, they can, without actually flashing the car differently, they can just say this is a low octane region, They can do coding for different exhaust types. So they can say that this is an OBD2 compliant North American region exhaust, and it might have an extra cat or a different silencer. They might have coding for another region where they've got a a gasoline particulate filter. They might then, every time they add intake valve timing and then exhaust valve timing and then variable valve lift, Every time they do any one of these things, you multiply up the number of tables. So you end up with two multiplied by three, multiplied by four, multiplied by five, and then you get big numbers. Sure. Okay. Um, so, you know, for example, the, if they've got one for exhaust valve timing and the exhaust valve timing isn't working and it's not in position, it will switch to one of the others. And that can happen, for example, in cold conditions. So it could be freezing and the oil temperature is too low and it might just disable the variable valve timing. And then it will suddenly use a different ignition map. Well, if you don't know that or you haven't tuned it or you've assumed you you could be in some trouble, you may also have a car like an R8 that you've turbocharged and there may be a minimum ignition timing maps. And you might have taken degrees out of the ignition timing table to, to cope with giving it a bar of boost where it had none from the factory. And then in a certain circumstance, you could hit a minimum ignition timing table and it suddenly throws in far too much timing again. So you've really got to watch the edge in the corner cases. And that's what we feel quality is about, knowing looking beyond the horizon so that you're really reducing all your risks by an order of magnitude so that you protect the engine as best as possible and get the best results in your calibration.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, I think. The 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 issue or what may scare a lot of aftermarket standalone tuners off with particularly the, the later models of factor engine management systems is as we've kind of alluded to already and just touched on, they are incredibly complex with, with a lot of tables and you know, you 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 may have a situation where you've run the car on the dyno, everything seems to be performing flawlessly, but maybe out in the wild, out in the real world. Uh, it, it runs into some circumstance where you couldn't replicate that on the dyno and maybe as you said there, you know, your R8 situation uh, hits a minimum timing sort of limit and all of a sudden you've got too much timing, something similar to that. So I think... That that information and education for the tuner, so that they can avoid those those potential pitfalls. Obviously, that's critical. Before we go too deep, there's still a couple more things I wanted to sort of circle back to here. And this was uh, John from your original mention of how you just uh, blitzed through the the Evo uh, open source part. You, you mentioned two more things that I'm interested in getting some feedback on, and I know these kind of uh, segue into what you're doing now with Dino Spectrum as well, but. Logging, now particularly with factory engine management systems, the the logging is so critical because otherwise we're essentially blind to what the ECU is actually doing. So logging and often multiple parameters is really, really important so we've got a bit of a glimpse into what the ECU is doing, whether it be on the road or on the dyno. Uh, So the problem as I've seen it is a lot of engine management systems, the logging rate is relatively low and particularly when we start logging multiple parameters, Uh, which obviously is essential, as I've just mentioned, that logging rate can drop down. And you just kind of touched on the fact that you you were able to massively increase the logging rate. So can you talk to us about how that's done and why there's the limitations in the first place?
0: Okay. Most of the factory protocols are designed for diagnostics, not for calibration. And so they are slow, not particularly because your physical link to the ECU is slow. So even, say, a K-line, a serial line, basically, on a Mitsubishi Evo. It might only offer you 100 parameters per second if you use the standard protocol, but as I mentioned earlier, you can get over 4,000. Uh, so that that communications channel isn't contested by anything else. It's just going to the OBD port in that particular car. So what I was able to do with that is uh, I read the processor manual and I used a thing called DMA, direct memory access, where you can basically dump data to the serial port, um, the K line, without using the processor. So you're not taking up processor time doing this. You just steal a, a small fraction, and we're talking like you know a fraction of 1% of the memory cycles on the ECU, and you fill up the K line with good data. And you also do that not using the standard PIDs that come with the car, but your RAM addresses. And so if you give a stack of hundred RAM addresses that you want to log as quickly as possible or at hundred hertz, and we've even experimented in the lab at thousand hertz, but you just don't need that. It just gives you too much data. You you can actually get a huge amount of data over a serial port that the thousand times a second is really over CANBOS. And then there are other technologies like FlexRay and Ethernet uh that, that can go even faster that are in our near future. Um so, really, it's, it is. I say just, but it is a case of software. If you change the code and you know what you're doing, you can write a new protocol, or change an existing protocol and speed it up. And you can change its nature so that you're not limited to a standard set
1: of PIDs. Okay, that makes sense. And the the PIDs as well, often what we have access to, essentially, I'd say, out of the box, can be quite limiting. So we, what I mean by that is we may not have access to some of the parameters that we really want to be able to see to help us with our tuning. So with that technique you've just mentioned there, I, I would assume that the, really the key part is knowing the addresses for the, the parameters that you actually want to send at high speed over that K line or whatever it is. Is that, is that correct?
0: Yes. And we get those through disassembly. So as we disassemble the tables and you, you build up a picture of ignition tables, you then follow the route through and you find where the final ignition is before it goes out to the timers that fire the coils. And you know you can log all the intermediate stages, for example. The first car we released for for Dyno Spectrum, the 4-litre V8 twin turbo, there was no logging of wastegate duty. And so previously what tuners were doing was hooking up an Arduino to measure it and <laughs> log it Separately. So, you know, that, that helps um, because you could suddenly get better boost control, but we could also log all the PID parameters and, the, you know, watch the integrators move up and down, watch the adaptations go up and down. And so suddenly we were getting boost curves where, yeah, the boost would actually hit and hold the target. It would do it in every gear, every weather condition. And the cars are just so much smoother to drive. You don't, you know, you control the intake temperatures better. You don't. Heat up the exhaust manifold and turbo too much. You know, it's just smoother, it's safer, and it's a lot more OEM like when you you have that sort of quality of data.
2: It kind of makes for better diagnostics too. Uh, if I can jump in there too. So, you know, at at the end of the day too, just having high speed data, it just good data logging, period. It just adds for better diagnostics, helping customers down the road because you can't start to see faults earlier you can't start to see you know when things have failed or maxed out or whatever so us logging you know a multitude of, of ram addresses and i mean we'd log many hundreds of them really helps us in the long run helps everybody really.
1: definitely i'll just i'll just dive into that just a little bit for those who maybe you know ha- haven't really considered the the logging frequency or logging rate and, and you know, often you might be limited, uh, to use an extreme example, maybe you've got a parameter that you can only log at 4 hertz. So that's four samples every second. And that's an incredibly slow rate for something that might be moving quickly, maybe uh, RPM manifold pressure, you know, mass airflow frequency or whatever that may be. And if you don't, you know first of all, if you're not aware of that, what it means is that you're kind of blind to what's actually happened between two samples, and often your logging software is just going to draw a a nice smooth line between the the points that's actually logged, but you're really blind to what's actually happening between so it can mask a lot of really really important things uh, so the the logging rate really is important to to make sure that you're logging at a high enough frequency to actually see uh, a true picture of of what's going on i mean Obviously, not every parameter needs to be logged at uh, fifty or a hundred hertz. You know, air temperature or engine coolant temperature move relatively slowly, so it does depend on on what you're looking at. But you know, sort of. I, I kind of like to to log but but most of the parameters between maybe 20 and, and fifty hertz i think as you mentioned your, your thousand hertz probably a bit of overkill for for most things but it's nice to know that that is a possibility now, Just coming back to to you mitch uh we've we've sort of focused on john there for a little bit and I just want to circle back to to some of your background and when you were working at AMS Performance, a big name for us as well here in New Zealand back when we first started building drag cars, uh, AMS were, were ones that we really looked up to and held at that time the the late model Evo world record which I was fortunate enough to have a, a customer uh, come and, and want to try and take down that record. So AMS were really and still are working at the top of their game, particularly their um, alpha performance uh, packages for the GTRs, the Audi, Lamborghini, etc., uh, very well respected. Now, you mentioned that while you were working at AMS, you were sort of doing some Porsche reverse engineering on in your own time. Sort of how did how did that come about, and what was what was the challenges that that presented for you?
2: Sure. So we were looking at kind of trying to do other things. You know, that were kind of at the time sort of out of the box. It was. You know, Porsche performance, trying to understand how the Euro cars were done. And back then, I would say this was around 2007. There was no real guide to it. You know, it was kind of this undisclosed black box that, that nobody wanted to give us access to. So we ended up doing a lot of research and, you know, went back and started to find out these, these things that were kind of hidden. They're not so hidden now, but. You know, figuring out that you know what what was then Deimos files, but um, demos file you, know, you needed demos files, and you needed to get tools that could flash ECUs and things like that. And then it was it was more of a, a starting to break down, get tables discovered, understand them. And this is before my run in in IDA, which is the software we use to to decompile code. So it was a lot of trial and error. You know, we definitely have some funny stories that. Weren't so funny back then, but he's probably laughing about now. But there's a lot of testing and just a lot of trying to understand, you know, how does a BTG controller work inside of a a turbocharger? And, you know, that was very foreign and still is foreign to a lot of folks and turbo manufacturers. You know, really trying to understand a different model, so to speak, especially coming from JDM cars where, you know, things are a lot different. You know, they're, they're using a different processor, a lot more, you know, SH style stuff in terms of like the processor so it's it's just a lot different control strategy methods and trying to understand those things
1: let's just talk about that for a moment so the the processor drives the the control strategy or can the manufacturer, does the manufacturer choose a, a, a processor that they're going to build a, an ECU from? And then on top of that, they've got their own sort of desired control strategy. You know, how, how, does, how does that work?
2: So it's kind of different, it seems, for a lot of manufacturers. For a lot of the European manufacturers, a lot of them use Bosch ECUs. A lot of the, the processors are the same. What ends up kind of happening is that the manufacturers will decide certain things that they want put in the ECUs. So let's say Porsche needs BTG control uh, over the turbochargers. So that's not a standard deal. Whereas Volkswagen may need something completely standard, but they can still use the same processor, uh, same ECU. So it could be you know, an MED-17 and both could have tri core processors, but they might be kind of wildly different in terms of some of the mapping uh, a decent amount of the code. Uh, so a lot of that stuff can change and does change between manufacturers. It'd be actually quite unusual if it didn't.
1: On, on that note, though, while you say, okay, Porsche want the VTG control strategy that that Volkswagen don't need, uh maybe they're both on the Bosch MED, whatever generation it is. Is the core principle of engine operation broadly similar between the likes of, you know, you've used Porsche and Volkswagen as two examples? Or, you know, chalk and cheese basically the Mars Mars will be two completely different controllers?
2: I mean it's kind of a kind of a vague answer, I guess, is that they can be very similar. They can also be very different. It depends on a lot of things. Like if you had an ME7 ECU and like a Porsche, which is comes in like the 996, 997, and then you compare that to MED 17 it can be similar. It can be different. Um, another thing Porsche did, which does make the control strategy completely different, is in the move from 997.1 turbo to say 997.2 or even 991, they switched manufacturers and went from uh, Bosch to Continental. So all of a sudden... Uh, you know between two uh, manufacturers the control strategies are completely different naming conventions everything code is completely different
1: so i guess for for the porsche tuners out there who were up to speed on the bosch product you kind of over a generation change had to relearn and start from scratch on the continental platform is that correct
2: yeah more or less especially on the flashing strategy on how you actually flash a car but yeah i mean all all the naming conventions, everything completely changed. So yeah, it was, it was quite a big quite a big change.
1: Now, a, a moment ago you used the term uh, Damos and, and that's something we hear thrown around in OE reflashing or reverse engineering terms. Uh, A2L is another one. Can you tell us what those terms mean and what the relevance of those is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Damos is, uh, you know, I use the word Damos. Damos is a pretty old name. Uh, It was kind of for what I would consider older ME series cars, like ME7s. A2L is really a more common name. Uh, Really what an A2L is, is it's a factory definition file that is usually followed with like an S19 or HEX file. It basically tells you for that one software version, basically what all maps are, what the RAM addresses are which is great but that only does so much because without understanding how the code works you may know the 96 tables names and the addresses for them but if you know you don't know how the code works and you've got to apply that to 20 other versions and they're all shifted and it's all different you know the ram addresses you usually go out the window and all of a sudden you've got to define a lot of things so it makes things a lot more difficult but yeah it's basically just factory definition files
1: from the manufacturers. Okay, so definition, you know where the the maps are, but not necessarily from the A2L file, uh, what the processor logic essentially is on how it's going to use the inputs, et cetera, to to work out which map to use. Uh, The A2L file, the Demos file, i'm I'm guessing that this isn't something that the factory is just handing out willy nilly to the to the aftermarket how How does it come to be that we get access to these old
2: navy buddies
1: <laughs> so a bit of a black market and uh and enough said pretty much it's uh
2: it's pretty gray uh, okay. but yeah i mean there are it, to be fair like there are some stuff floating around in various forums and um, you know different automotive groups, so they can be found. Some of the more uh, relevant or newer stuff is is usually a lot harder for to come by, and that is really where it gets a little
1: gray. All right. Let's move sort of more into the the process. I mean, we've obviously talked a little bit about this already, but the the actual process that you both use for reverse engineering. You know, you've got a, a controller that maybe you've got no previous experience with. Can you talk us through first of all the tools and software that are required, and then on top of that, how you actually go about. Uh, reverse engineering their issue, finding and defining the, the maps, and then validating the the operation?
0: Uh, we use IDA Pro or IDA Pro, which is a common disassembler tool which covers probably now well over 100 different processor families. And so, for example, the SH2, I think, was related to something in a Sega Dreamcast in the 1990s or, or something and then ended up in the Mitsubishi Evo and the Subaru. And the interesting thing for me with that was uh, once I'd learned that, it did take me a while to learn and get good at that processor, because you're looking at compiled code that's got no hints in it. And you, as you disassemble it, you label things and you help the disassembler to find cross-references between tables and RAM addresses, and you gradually build up a picture and you you piece it together. But it does take me quite a time to develop on one processor. And so I tried to stick to that for a couple of years in one ECU family. And that that also has a, a relevance commercially for me because I'd, I'd done the Subaru tuning and then let that go. And then the Evo work in, in the noughties was open source. I then got one of the earliest R35 GTRs in the UK in 2009. And that was when I came into contact with Cobb and got their access port and they could already flash it. But uh, when I tried to tune it, I found that you know, the, the product wasn't quite formed in terms of things like knock control and logging of knock and wastegate control, for example. So interestingly, it had the same SH2 processor that I'd just spent four years on the Evo with where I'd done the fast logging, the speed density and all the other stuff that we mentioned. So, uh, I approached Trey Cobb and said, would you like me to do all of this for the GTR? And, you know, I did a three year gig with them, uh, still working as a doctor and did all of that for the GTR. Uh, and that was really good fun. But after three years, I was, I was struggling a bit with time and sanity, moonlighting two jobs and I was paying locums to run my medical practice for a day or two a week so I could have more time, uh, Writing stuff for the GTR, but that was a really, really enjoyable project. But yeah, again, I made the wrong decision then in 2012 by you know retreating back to my medical career for a break for a while, and uh, yeah, that lasted another three years until I finally burnt out the medical career and decided to do this, okay, really full time.
1: I guess that's probably a good segue into Dino Spectrum, which is the business that you, John and Mitch are running together and founded. So give us the, the sort of 30,000 foot view of what Dino Spectrum is, what products and services are you offering?
2: So with Dino Spectrum, we sell a product called the DS1. Um, the DS1 is its own device that was designed with us and another guy and is built uh, in the US, it's a wireless device. So it connects via a web browser to your phone, to uh, your computer. I mean, our early some of our early guys did it with their watches. But um, basically what it does is it's very similar to some other things in that it comes pre-determined with uh, off-the-shelf maps. So let's say you have uh, an intake or turbos or whatever. It's got various stages that you can put on which is great, and it works for a lot of our users. The other thing that we do is that we supply what's called an XDF. So with Tuner Pro, which is something we don't write, but with Tuner Pro, you can drop in this XDF, and this comes with every DS1. Um, Mm -hmm. You can drop in this XDF, and the XDF is basically, like we were talking before, with definitions. So it gives you all the tables, everything else which you would need to custom tune it. On top of all this... We also offer the super, the super fast logging, uh, real-time tuning. So that was another big thing that was um, invented by John. And we've really tweaked and got working very well is, you know, the ECU, there was, there was real-time tuning before. This is different in the fact that you can wirelessly tune a car with, you know, every single table inside of a car from the other room, you know, even most standalones can't do that, you know. Barring some needing some other things, but so you can do full real-time tuning, map switching, flex fuel, uh, custom maps. So I don't think there's a more powerful stock ECU tuning device out there, especially one that uh, the end user can make all the changes themselves. They can encrypt the files so they can't be stolen, things like that.
1: Uh, th- there's there's a, a bunch of stuff there to to just unpack in a little bit more detail. So, uh, particularly from from what I've seen through my commercial tuning business, when it comes to the European tuning market, sort of Volkswagen, Audi Group vehicles, BMW, Mercedes, etc., there's there's a lot of products out there that allow a flashing and reading of those ECUs and a lot of them seem to sort of work on the the master-slave sort of uh, business model where there'll be a master tuner who's actually doing the hard work of, of defining the, the maps, making the changes, testing and validating those changes maybe on a car in their workshop, hopefully on a car in their workshop and then they develop a network of, of slave dealers Who are basically getting customers come in the door and they'll just flash uh, an off the shelf map that this master dealer has developed into the customer's car, send them out the door, and you know. I guess the the answer there is that for a lot of people that does work provided that the off the shelf maps have been developed. The problem I, I sort of saw with that model was it didn't really allow those slave dealers to make subtle changes. Maybe you've got a car that's got a, a modification that's a little unique and, and you can't sort of tailor that unless you've got a really good relationship with that master dealer and they're prepared to make those changes for you. The other problem there is a lot of the software that's available, and I won't sort of name names, but. It's quite expensive and when you actually get down to the nitty gritty, you quite often find that particularly for the less popular models, the definitions that are supplied with it are, are either woefully lacking or sometimes just incorrect. So that kind of leaves the tuner back in the situation where they need to go and find maps and it was sort of touched on already, I mean the very different skill sets, tuning an engine to actually finding maps. So it sounds like your product is essentially covering everything. You've got the ability to just flash in an off-the-shelf map for those who maybe don't have the interest or the knowledge in actually tuning their own vehicle, but for those who want to get really deep into the weeds with this stuff, you're also providing thorough, well, well-documented well definitions so that the, the tuner actually knows what maps to use. Have I sort of covered that off correctly?
2: Yeah, and the other thing that we kind of did, John did is, you know, we we will go back to the 96 maps thing with the switchable maps stuff. A lot of it's also been, I'll call it simplified so that you only have to make changes to say a gasoline or an, eth- an ethanol map for flex fuel. Instead of those 96, you're just making a change to two maps. You know, maybe you have to do the, the minimum tables, but we're really made it so that we tried to make it as easy as possible for people, you know, for professional tuners like you and I that do this every day for a living that, you know, need to tune cars and don't have time to do, take the time to tune one car in five days. It's, um, it's simplified a lot of that process. And the other nice thing is we don't hide, you know, any of the data. So the OTS maps you can open, the end user can open the OTS maps. They're not locked. They can see what we've changed. They can see what we've done. From a calibration perspective and if they want to change them great if they want to change you know if, if it's knocking a little too much or if, uh you know whatever if they want to raise the idle whatever they want to do they can do that and with with complete flexibility there's nothing that they have to buy extra there's nothing hidden it's all there and just ready to go
1: okay the other aspect that i want to dive into is this real-time tuning because i i know Because I went through this transition myself, coming from a standalone tuning background where you obviously are live tuning every parameter, at least to start with, in the uh, factory engine management world, that, that just wasn't an option. You know, live tuning wasn't a thing. We always had to essentially log, then stop the car look at our log file, decide on what changes were required, apply those to the maps and then shut the engine off essentially, flash those changes in and try again. Now that sounds like a chore, the reality is at least when we're on a dyno and we're doing wide open throttle ramp runs, it's probably actually not too much different to a standalone because we don't tend to make a a change to the ignition timing while we're doing a ramp run. What it does do is it it dramatically complicates the steady state part throttle tuning where we want to be able to make a change while we're running the engine at let's say 3000 RPM and maybe 40% throttle or whatever that may be. Now as time went on and I sort of spent more time tuning factory engine management systems, we did see some of the open source and commercial reflash manufacturers offering some real time tuning And, you know, often that was a case of a handful of select maps that you could real-time tune. I know Cobb, as you kind of alluded to, offer this. And that was a a real godsend for a lot of us as well, a huge time saver. You're saying, though, with your solution that every single map is available for real-time tuning. How are you getting around that? How is that possible?
0: Changing the code and the amount of free RAM are the main things so, for example, on the Japanese cars, you know, some of the ones I've mentioned, there might be a couple of kilobytes. And so, if you're going to select a group of real time tables, you could fit about five or six 3D tables in and a couple of 2D ones. Uh, some of the ECUs we're dealing with now have 50, 100, 200, 300 kilobytes of free RAM. And that's approaching the size of the calibration on some of the smaller ECUs, but certainly it covers many times over the number of changes you would need to make in a calibration. So, for example, our off-the-shelf maps that are open, we, we only change things that need to be changed for a defined reason that we can explain, defend, and teach. And so, for example, we may only change 20 kilobytes in a 300, 400 kilobyte of actual calibration data to do a stage one or stage two type tune. Um, and that's all you really need to change. So in that way, because we we allocate at runtime, if you like, which tables are going to be changed, we can do that until you run out of memory. We, we don't have to pre-select what we're going to do. So um, there's a couple of cars you have to be a bit careful. And the biggest one actually is the 96 ignition tables because they're often grouped together. And um, if you consolidate those so that you tell the tuner which one to adjust, you save a lot of RAM by not having to, to adjust all 96 of them. But we never reduce function in any of the changes that we make. We never reduce safety. We just look at places where tables are the same from the factory. Their function is the same, their purpose is the same, and it makes sense to keep them the same. Then we might consolidate and collapse them so that when you change one of them, we actually label clearly, you change this one, you're changing another 32 of them, that you now don't need to touch.
1: And now my my broad understanding with, with this technique and you sort of mentioned there, the RAM, you're, you're copying essentially, as I understand it again, the, these tables into RAM so that they can be changed in real time. But if you power down the ECU at that point, those changes because they're in RAM are lost. I, I I believe that's correct. So at the end, once you've actually made your calibration, you still need to flash those permanently into the ECU. Am, am I on the right track here? I'm completely lost.
0: You are on the European ECUs. On some of the Japanese ECUs, they keep their RAM when you turn them off. But yeah, generally we flash. But we, we also, as well as doing real-time tuning, we do a calibration flash on most of our ECUs in 30 seconds. And that's from it's actually about 10 seconds of writing actual data. And the rest of it's waiting for the ECU to erase the segment and connect and go through all the process. So, you know, 30 seconds isn't bad to consolidate things uh, after you've done a real-time session. And if you were to run out of RAM or you want to go to lunch or whatever, we have methods to, you you can either flash it or you can resume your work from where you left off and continue. And we, we use safety mechanisms to make sure that the tuner knows that they've got the files all in sync and that they know what they're doing.
1: That 30-second flash time seems incredibly fast just given most of the factory engine management systems I've I've dealt with so far. I mean, it's not uncommon for flash times to be in the region of sort of two or three minutes, sometimes multiples of that. Is there something tricky that you're doing to, to bring that flash time down so quick?
0: Our own hardware and our own software or firmware that goes in that hardware typically doubles or triples our performance compared with tuners that would buy in hardware which isn't performance-optimized. We deliberately make the package as tiny as we can, as fast as we can, and as customized as we can. And, you know, as a a startup company where it, it took me Three years with, with no income, we bootstrap this ourselves. I was developing all these strategies and automations and methods. I wanted to hit the market with something hard that would be worth that three years of beans on toast, as we call it <laughs> in the UK, so that when I hit it, nobody would be able to catch up. And, you know, that, that's what we tried to achieve.
1: Now you've also talked so far multiple times through this interview about custom features and I mean, you're definitely not the only ones offering custom features but basically by that I'm, I'm talking about something that the ECU from the factory didn't offer, maybe that's flex fuel, uh, whatever it, it, it may be. How, how is that possible when you're starting with a factory controller? What, what's necessary to introduce custom functionality?
0: You have already compiled code, which you need to understand. And then the usual concept of it is making a a thing called a hook in the code, which sends the ECU off into running your own code. So for example, when an ignition map is looked up, it goes off and runs our code instead, having already looked up factory ignition map. And that means that we can then do anything we like uh, with the lookup. And that Ignition one, for example, is a particularly powerful, but also particularly dangerous one if somebody gets it wrong. So you need to be really careful that you don't, say, change the signed variable into an unsigned one and suddenly have 64 degrees more ignition timing than you should, for example. So you have to really be careful and test and, and keep very focused on, on what you're doing. But, yeah, the, that, the principle is to put lots of hooks in the ECU. And I used to do these manually in assembler for every version. And if you're only dealing with, you know, four or five versions and you're only putting like, you know, 10 hooks in, that's fine. But we now put in hundreds and hundreds of versions and we can't afford to make a mistake because you blow something up and we've never blown anything up with a code error and we don't ever want to. And the way we do that is with automation. So part of that three years of run up to this and also to ensure that we were competitive was that. If we want to recompile and rebuild our code, although it's in an already compiled ECU, we can change a line of code and rebuild 30 or 100 versions, let the computer get on with it, let the computer do all the tests and the checks to make sure there are no errors, and then release an update with a new feature or occasionally an improvement or a fix.
1: I guess when you're working across so many different software versions that would just absolutely be an essential element, there's just no way one person could do that to all of those versions in a time-efficient manner, correct? Yes. With the ability to, to add this sort of functionality is is it a really a case of the sky's the limit are, are there limitations on on what features you can add to a factory controller or is it just a case of what a customer is requesting and and what you can dream up
0: not really i, I don't think there are any limitations because these ecus have enough processing power considering the temperature rated for you know underhood use next to the engine they've got enough memory um, code is small New maps are relatively small. Really, it is usually imagination. We do occasionally get constrained with the amount of free memory, but for example, I've measured that the impact of all of our patches on processing time is less than 1%. So the ECU has plenty of power left and we still have, you know, like a megabyte of free flash, yet we might only have 100 or 200 kilobytes of our own code to do some really pretty complex stuff. So, It's not so much the machine resources, it's more the human resources and the imagination, but also the commercial relevance of it. But as well as us writing the the patches, you know, I've been doing that now for 16 years since I started doing it on the Evo. What we've tried to do in the last year and a half is to now give that facility so that customers can write their own. So now we can let skilled tuners who would often need help with this, but they can actually write their own code in C to patch the ECU, and they can actually even do that whilst the engine's running, um, using our real-time strategies. And that needs care, because if you write some bad code, <laughs> the ECU will reset. So, you know, we put all kinds of warnings on this and about how it's tested, but this is really a segue into what we're doing with the the V10R8 and Hurricane stuff, because it's a, a normally aspirated, expensive, very high-revving engine with high compression that, has immense tuning potential for which people have been using standalones. And our whole mission has been, well, why not use the, the ECUs that are in the car? Because they are, in some ways, more powerful than most standalones. And the, the biggest element is understanding them, utilizing them, and, and and doing it all correctly. And I don't really see many limits apart from what people can imagine and actually Find the commercial relevance and and funding to achieve, and thankfully on high end cars where we like to to help, you know, people are enthusiastic enough to fund the the more extreme end of of this sort of activity.
2: So also to touch on that a little bit, um, a a lot of what you know we've talked about custom features and everything else, a lot of what has been added in the past year year and a half is what we would call custom maps. So with the custom maps, you can drop in C code. We have guides on how to do, you know, custom boost control. It, it basically allows you to do kind of whatever you want to do. Andre, you might kind of uh, appreciate this. So in the old gold box, like M800s, do you remember how you could kind of change accesses and things like that?
1: Yeah, very powerful.
2: Right. So this can do this at that exact same thing. So you can po- you can populate you know, your X and Y and Z data, all from, let's say, a custom input. Let's say you want to bring in a map sensor, a temperature sensor, whatever. If you want to bring something into the ECU, we enable you to do that through the powertrain CAN bus. So you can bring that in, put that into these custom maps. And then even to the point that it can only work in certain maps, it can be used as safeties. safety. So if, you know, you go over a, a, a Pressure limit or a temperature limit, it can drop to a certain map for safety. Or the sky is kind of the limit on what you can do in terms of that. And um, the nice thing about that is, it, it there is a bit of a learning curve to get that to work. Once you have that, it is really, really, really powerful because you can add just about anything
1: you can think of. I'm glad you just mentioned that, Mitch, uh, about bringing in uh, additional sensors over the CAN bus because obviously you know, so, some of the control strategies we may want to implement, flex fuel, for example, on vehicles that have no flex fuel sensor, you may need to actually bring in some, some additional inputs. And Obviously, on face value, we're we're limited by the I/O that the the factory engine management system has. And you know, back in the early days, maybe we've talked about uh, Subaru Mitsubishi already. You know, it, it was possible to bring in uh, a sensor over maybe the the rear O2 sensor wiring, so basically physically wire that into what was the rear O2 sensor input, and bring in a wideband, for example, or something of that nature. So. Now we don't need to do any wiring. The ECU doesn't get touched. You've got the ability to bring in these sensors. And I'm assuming it's going to require a a, a module to convert an analog voltage input into a CAN message. Is that something you're, you're offering there?
2: We don't sell those devices. We just integrate with them. But we have used and tested a lot of them, pretty much all of them uh, that we know of uh, more or less. But you no, know, we don't sell them. We do... You know, try and support as many as we can in terms of helping customers if they need support on our side. But yeah, it does give you the ability to wire into the powertrain can and add. I mean, even to the point like I know you've had Sander on here. Sander is a good friend of mine. I mean, we even brought an INS into onto the factory can bus uh, just as a, just to a show we could do it type thing. But you know, we could bring in. We did bring in the INS over the stock powertrain can and. Based on that, we could take it and make control strategies based on you know something even as complicated as the INS.
1: Yeah, okay. That d- it does really open up uh, just about unlimited possibilities, but it also begs the question of the skill set that is required to, to make use of this. And you've, you've already mentioned there you can write, well, the user can potentially write their own code in C. And, and that, that's, again, sort of comes back to this quite markedly different skill set from actually tuning an engine, I mean most tuners probably haven't come from a computer programming background no doubt there's, there's a handful that that will have, but I think that's the exception, not the norm so you know let, let's say we've got a commercial tuner who's who's pretty smart, pretty intelligent wants to expand their their skill set uh, they're a very competent tuning. Uh, factory and aftermarket engine management systems come across your system and the light bulb goes off in their head and they want to start expanding what they can do by by writing this custom code. I mean, at that point in their career, is is learning enough in programming with C possible or is is that sort of a really dramatic departure?
0: It's quite difficult, I would say. And we, we did this because we wanted the features, particularly on the V10, for a boost controller. So, we knew that not a lot of people would use it. But it's a handful at most, uh, and then probably only two or three that really use it to its potential. And it's great to see them do that. What we've done, we've made these open examples again, but rather than people having to build them themselves, we do actually then just give them a file on the DS1 for the V10s that has the boost controller code in it with some sample tables. So in a lot of cases, it, it's nice that people can look under the hood and understand what we've done and learn from it. And I don't know of anyone yet that's actually rewritten our closed loop boost controller because the code isn't there on the normal aspirated engine. But, you know, it's there for them to learn and to think about. Maybe they will soon. And
2: the other thing I would say is, too, is with the custom apps, there is C code you can drop in. You can also just, and I say just, you can basically populate some data values and we give you a sheet. On the DS1, that will tell you where these RAM addresses are, so you can populate tables yourself, you know, as a tuner and make like engine safeties, things like that. So that part of it is a little easier. I would say that's actually tremendously easier. So it's a lot easier for a commercial tuner to wrap their head around something like that. You know, a full build and see of a closed loop system is a lot more intense. But again, you don't. You can kind of take both ways. You can go really far into it or you can kind of pick the things that you want to do make your safeties and do that kind of thing and it, it still allows you to do all that so there's, it's kind of both ends of the spectrum so to
1: speak yeah i mean it sounds like we're getting to some some fairly sort of niche requirements where where that is uh, something that the tuner is going to be using but i mean the fact that you've you've incorporated that and they can i mean that that's that's amazing We've talked uh, here a little bit about this Audi R8 and obviously that uh, shares the the sort of platform with the Lamborghini Huracan. That's become an incredibly popular platform, particularly in the drag racing and, and sort of roll racing area, particularly when you start adding a couple of turbos to these vehicles. It seems like they really come alive and uh, it, it's a platform that's well supported now by the likes of Motec and Cybex with full aftermarket standalones. So I'm interested here. What is the sort of benefits to going standalone? Is there any benefit? Are people only going standalone because it's what they know and understand? Can you essentially get the same exact results using your DS1 product with the factory controller?
2: There's always, you know, people always kind of have uh, preferences on how on what they wanted to, and even if you wanted to say, you know. I've got a V10 car, I'm going to go standalone, you know, is it Cybex or Motec? you know, and people argue till they're blue in the face about which one's better. It it's still kind of comes down to preference. There's always going to be the guys that want to use things like MoTeX because um, it might be a little bit easier for them, they might be more familiar. You know, with the DS1, it it really does have the ability to do a lot. Uh, I would say it checks the boxes of pretty much everything a standalone can do. The only really kind of quote unquote downside to it is that it is a little bit more complicated. It takes a little bit more time to learn. There are some other gotchas like logging, in-car logging, but that is something that potentially will go away. But for the most part, you know, they're they're honestly more similar than you would think. I mean, I, I don't know if you've done much. Uh, like Bosch Motorsports stuff, but really, kind of what the DS1 has turned the, the Bosch ECU into is a is a pretty similar form of the Bosch Motorsports ECU. You know, it's it's even the naming conventions are the same in, in a lot of the you know engine speed and things like that. So, you know, it's very very relevant, especially if you are. It sounds strange to say you're on a budget, but <laughs> you know, some guys don't want to spend you know that much money on a standalone, and this is a good option for them, especially if if they want to stay at a, a reasonable horsepower of you know fourteen or fifteen hundred <laughs> and, and not go the whole two three thousand route you know it's um you know everybody's like I said everybody's got their preference but you know this is a good option for a lot a lot of folks
1: so it it's it, sorry for for laughing there but when you use 1400 as a as a mile power level in the same sentence it, uh, it it's just makes me realise how far things have come. The budget aspect, I was gonna bring that up and then and then wondered if it becomes a bit of a moot point when you're talking about a, a car with a, a sticker price that's that's probably I and mean, I'm not shopping for them so I don't know, but probably well over two hundred thousand US dollars. You know. That being said, everyone still does have a budget. I'm I'm assuming that your DS1 product is going to be fractions of the cost of of a standalone for the lights of an R8 or a hurricane
2: Yeah, it's about so we charge twenty five ninety nine full retail for ours, and I I don't know Motet pricing, but I want to say it's closer to fifteen to twenty thousand ish.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a significant difference.
0: Of course, you need two ECUs on the V10 as well, because even even the standalone ECUs just don't have enough outputs to cover you know twenty fuel injectors. Yeah.
1: <laughs> these these engines run direct injection with port injection as well, so a ten cylinder engine, you've got twenty injectors, correct?
2: Yeah, you need like all the IO you can get.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now you you mentioned logging, and that's one of the aspects where I mean, the the line as I see it between at which point you you need to go standalone is constantly becoming more and more blurred, and, and I don't think there really is a, a black and white anymore. But but one of the the things that has always sort of pushed me towards, you know, this is the time for a standalone is when you're in a motorsport application and, and you want logging. Uh, because traditionally, particularly onboard logging with a factory engine management system it just hasn't been a thing. I'm assuming though, given the the vast changes that you're making to the logging capability, is it possible then to to provide that output into a central hub logging device, maybe a a dash logger or something of that nature? Indeed, it is,
0: and it already exists. Uh, There's a third-party product that works uh, uniquely with the DS1 called BT Res, which started as a nice widescreen color display on which you can put gauges. Um, And they're beautiful, and it's a fraction of the cost of, of similar devices. But it runs, it has gigabytes of storage, and it continuously logs, And it automatically uploads those logs to the cloud. And then they've got their own viewer that you can view it in. And I think he's about to, or just has released a headless version that doesn't have the display. And, you know, when you start looking at using, you know, system on on modules with, you know, EMMC chips with gigabytes of data, suddenly this, this disadvantage when you're using almost commodity hardware wrapped up in some nice software, you know, for $500, you've suddenly got you suddenly move the goalposts rather rather more than the standalones can do,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah, one thing just to circle well back here uh, we we haven 't really sort of talked about the the range of vehicles that uh, Dino spectrum is supporting with this ds one product obviously we've we've dived into the Uh, R8 platform there, but uh, yeah, what what sort of for those listening, what sort of range of vehicles can you provide support for?
0: At the moment, we we started with the Audi four liter, so that would be about 2012 to 2018 models. So that's things like the Audi S6, S7, RS6, RS7, S8, A8, and that was a fairly niche car. And we started with that because I had one and I liked it, and we also thought it would be small enough that we could support it well and we could go deep on a product and really show what we could do. And that has surprised us because I think we, we've we probably changed that into a bit of a tuner car, for those that know. It's certainly a bit of a sleeper, something like the S8 that, that comes with 600 horsepower or, you know, say a 520 horsepower model, you just reflash it and you add 150 horsepower. You add some ethanol to it, you add another 100 horsepower, you change the turbos and the stock internals and engine will do 1,000 horsepower. So that, that was an incredible car. We've really enjoyed turning that market around, and that's really what, what got our foot in the door as Dyna Spectrum. Uh, the next one we did was the Audi RS3 and the TTRS. Uh, we came quite late into that market and it already had standalones. So we've made an impact there. But you know, the the R eight and the, the Hurricane has has been really quite a special one, not because of volumes, but because it's encourages us just push on and really push as hard as we could and do things we only dreamed of technically, even if they're probably not that commercially relevant, but they've been fun. I think where we go next is we're going to try and go a bit broader and we're going to really focus on what features we need to offer and select the cars a bit bit more. But we're going to go wider in the Vag Group, certainly, and see if we can do more of the good flashing at home stuff for more people at, you know, perhaps a slightly sharper price point without all the features, and then add the features in for the really special cars, the tuna cars.
1: just from a, a business perspective, I'm I'm interested in your sort of thought process as you were forming Dino Spectrum. I mean, John, you've mentioned you sort of beavered away eating ramen noodles or beans on toast for three years with with really no kind of proof of concept, I guess, of, of what the finished product was going to sell like. Was there a, was it a, just a complete leap of faith or you, you knew that if you built it, that the customers would come? Had you done any sort of business sort of planning strategies? Yeah, give me a bit of insight into that side of things.
0: Two elements, really. I suppose I had done it before open source on the Evo and then the proof of the commercial reality of this was doing the GT for Cobb. And, you know, that car was released during a a great recession and it did very well. I think anyone that touched the GTR has done well. But I think being involved in that project, uh, we realized there was, you you know, there was a good commercial product to be had from doing really high-end features and looking after customers really well and also stopping all the, the, the secrecy around Euro tuning and really trying to open it up and improve the quality of everything. And so there was a leap of faith in, in doing it ourselves. I suppose the other element is the beans on toast thing and the fact that I had I had a medical career. And in Scotland, it's not as lucrative as you might imagine. But I'm, I'm a keen saver. And I suppose at the point where I was fed up finally with medicine, I could leave. We'd saved enough and my wife had set up a business that kept us going. And whilst Mitch says he joined what I did, in some ways I joined what he did because he had started his own Tuning arm um, as a you know as something he was permitted by Cobb to do whilst he was there, and that achieved quite considerable commercial success and having him on the u s side of the pond and me here and the technical stuff I'd done and he'd done and the commercial stuff he bought to uh, it was by no means a dead cert, but you know it, it had it confidence work out beyond what we expected yeah. We had yeah. we had the elements there. It wasn't my first time in business. It wasn't Mitch's sure. first time in business. We were always super lean on things. We never had outside investors. Um, whilst we've we've indulged ourselves in in doing kind of technical fripperies and sometimes crazy things that people really don't need, just for the fun of it or to say yeah we can do it. We we do have a, a base a core of of making a good commercial company and you know it's probably no surprise that we've had a number of people approaching us to buy the business but we're having so much fun that we're not even really seriously thinking of that Uh, we're having the time of our lives trying to turn this market around and we can't really talk in detail about what the next product is because we want it to be a real surprise but it's going to be completely different and it's going to astonish quite a lot of people what it does
1: okay sounds interesting a bit of a tease there now, now, Mitch. Just again on the on the business front here, just from your perspective, and I mean this this is irrespective of what business you you're potentially looking to start up. It's always a, a very scary prospect when you you've got a, a steady employment. And in this case, I'm guessing at that time you you were working for Cobb, and John's just mentioned you were doing sideline tuning as well. You know, at, at what point do you sort of go, hey, I'm going to take a leap of faith here, throw throw this career, uh, well, not maybe the career, throw this this job uh, away and and hope that I can make it on my own? How, how did that thought process go for for you?
2: Um, I kind of, well, not kind of. John and I had been working on some stuff. I had been doing, a friend of mine had bought a McLaren, so I started doing McLaren's. And it was just kind of, I mean, it was for fun to learn something new. You know, I really enjoyed my time at Cobb. I learned a lot. I worked with a lot of great people. I got to kind of a point, I was there for 7 or 8 years, and I kind of got to a point where I just wanted to try something on my own. We had built the Porsche Access port to uh, be quite profitable. Um, And I was confident that we could build another device and something that was... uh, that was a bit different and had more technology in it. And I I was just confident in the process and I was confident in, in kind of what I had done and what John had done. So it was, you know, for me, it wasn't too big of a leap of faith. It just kind of felt like the right thing to do in the right time.
1: Perfect. Okay. Uh, in terms of the business as it stands, is it the two of you or have you got other employees working on this? I mean, it sounds to me like being able to develop on multiple platforms. I mean, John, you've mentioned that you sort of wanted to focus on one platform and know it really in-depth, intricately, which which obviously makes a lot of sense. But to be able to multiply that across multiple platforms, obviously that takes manpower. Have you got other people involved? If not, are you going to have other people involved?
0: We do. Um, we have Administrative directors who happen to be our wives, and that's that's been very good to keep us going. But we also have a number of contractors that we've worked with because we've still got the the lean startup mentality, and because we want to keep everyone and us keen and everyone right, we we have used contractors rather than employees. It's quite difficult to find employees with the right qualities in this industry, and there's there's a huge skill shortage and. I have to be honest, sometimes an attitude shortage as well in in terms of work ethic. I think I would possibly, I didn't used to drive my employees mad when I did have them in in other businesses, because it was very defined what they did, you know, like practice managers, receptionists, and so on. But in this, I think I might not be the easiest to work for.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. I, I I do echo your thoughts there, though. It, it, I think almost across any industry, it, it is difficult to to find uh, good talent. So when you do find those who are good at what they do, um, it, it's also really important to to reward and hold on to them. Okay, I think we've probably taken up uh, enough of your time and I do want to respect your time so I think we'll move towards wrapping this up and we've got uh, the same three questions that we ask all of our guests at the end. Uh, The first of those uh, which John maybe you've alluded to but let's see what we can talk about, uh, what's next and in the future for you either personally or you and Dino Spectrum and uh, either of you can answer that one.
2: It's you know one of the things we've been doing. It's not a secret is we've been working on the DS1 for the four liter, uh, the RS6, so the new the new four liters, so the the C8 platform. So that's coming. We've got those flashing. Uh, so the new MG1 ECU, the newer Bosch style ECU. So that'll be good for a lot of people, and we're looking forward to that. On top of that, John is
0: moving. Yeah, we're relocating from Scotland to the Isle of Man shortly. We like it there, but it gives us a chance to be a bit more competitive as well. It's a bit more business friendly, and it's certainly very motorsport friendly. And the roads and the scenery are just a dieful. The whole place is basically a TT or motorcycle racetrack. You know, they've got black and white curbstones down the main road. Uh, (laughs) Great place.
1: The scenery, as I understand it, literally, uh, at least once a year, is to die for with the uh, Isle yeah. of Man TT, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, it's an, sadly, insane, yeah. an insane event. That, that actually, uh, I should have asked already, d- does that create, obviously at the moment we're interviewing you both in, in Scotland, but that's the exception, not the norm, uh, Mitch. You're normally in Southern California, as I understand it. So talk, talk to us just briefly there about the complexities of, of working uh, across two very different countries and different time zones it
2: actually works quite well especially for our customers cuz they kind of get 24-hour support usually but yeah i mean we we stay in contact and honestly it actually works really well we don't have really any issue with it at all fortunately uh, John's a insane workaholic and i'm pretty close behind him so it, it works well honestly
1: all right so this next question I'll, I'll get an answer from from each of you uh the question is what advice uh, if any would you give to a younger version of yourself to help fast track your career or, or reach essentially where you are in your career today so let's start with you john
0: uh, there's a number of things that your previous participants and many people have already said before and so this is going to be a repeated one so i would say do something you love It really does matter because to me, I didn't for many years. I performed and did my duty and people liked what I did, but I didn't enjoy my job. And you know, in the end, it resulted in burnout. And that forced my hand to think about what I was going to do and do what I should have done at the beginning. Obviously, though, with the caveat that you have to do something that people want. That is legal. You have to look after people, treat them right, and all that kind of stuff that makes a good business. And and unfortunately, many of those things are not covered by businesses. A lot of people in this industry are are not always treated right, and things are not always done to the highest standards.
1: Uh, I I could not agree more on on all of that. I mean, yeah, first of all, you, you're going to spend the majority of a, of your life. In employment. So you, know, you, you need to be doing something that you're passionate about and enjoy. And I mean, unfortunately, I think it's safe to say the majority of people uh, don't fall into that. So if you've got the option to sort of uh, tailor, curate a career uh, from the get-go then then trying your hardest to find something you're passionate about that also can put money in your in your bank is is, is the way um, you know I think I think that's something that is is really easy to overlook and I mean in terms of the automotive industry and in, in particular I spent 13 years running a performance workshop I, I saw the good the bad and the ugly and unfortunately there's more ugly than there is good uh, it, there's a lot of people who who simply don't understand what they're doing and that the results are exactly what you'd expect, which essentially is why we founded High Performance Academy. One of one of our goals was to uh, improve the level of, of knowledge and professionalism in the automotive industry. So you know that that's that's something that still drives us to this day. All right, Mitch, what a, what have you got for us on that on that front?
2: Don't become a doctor.
1: <laughs> It does sound no, like I mean, potentially not becoming a doctor could have fast tracked uh, John's career quite dramatically, but uh, that maybe goes without no, saying.
2: No, it was good. But, you know, it's, it's the same sentiments. It's, you know, this, this industry super can be very, very toxic. It can be very amazing too. You know, there's a lot of camaraderie even between shops and things, which is awesome. But you know, that's the same sentiment is do something you're passionate about and not something that you're either forced into or, you know, your, your parents think you need to do. I don't know. You know, I didn't go to college. I'm very happy. I didn't, you know, I just think that there's something out there for everybody and, you know, for them to follow that and not necessarily listen to what, you know, society has to say they have to do or shouldn't do. So, yeah you know, that's probably my two cents on that one.
1: I, I think probably just to, to circle back to, to John's career as a doctor as well. I, I mean, it's probably a perfect sort of example that you know, don't feel like that's you for life. You know, it's never too late to pivot, and you know, in John's case, obviously a, a total one eighty in career direction. And, and look how that's working out, obviously, uh, far happier for that change. So I think too many people probably think that they've made their decision, they've got that sunk cost fallacy of the time and the money they've invested into a career, and uh, that that's them for life. But it, it doesn't have to be. All right, enough dwelling on that, though. Like, uh, Let's move on. And if people want to follow you guys and see what you're up to, how are they best to do so?
2: Social media is our best uh, outlets. You know, we do have our website, www.dinospec.com. Dot com. We have our Facebook at Dino Spectrum, And on Facebook, we too, we have actually a bunch of great resources in Facebook groups. So we have a, uh, some DS1 groups for the cars we support. There's actually a lot of information, a lot of knowledge in there, a lot of uh, a great group of a lot of people in there. Um, and then of course, we've got our um, Instagram at uh, Dino Spectrum.
1: Perfect. All right. We'll put a link to those in the show notes as well so people can uh, find those a little bit easier. All right, John and Mitch, thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting learning about your journey and the products you're, you're supplying. Uh, we really look forward to seeing what comes of Dino Spectrum in the future. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with John and Mitch from Dino Spectrum we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking out a random reviewer and sending them an HPA t-shirt free anywhere in the world. Also this is a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to Rob Rickson who has said, this has quickly become the best automotive podcast available which is no surprise considering the standard of HP Academy content generally. If you're just finding out about it, the Shane T and John Reed episodes are treasure troves. Oh, Thanks for that feedback Rob and we're glad that you are enjoying the podcast. Now Rob has also asked a question, his question being, what's the best wideband controller on the market, be it integrated in an ECU or as a standalone controller, I've gone with a Spartan for a Link G4X build. Oh It's a bit of a difficult question to answer, I don't think it's a black and white answer, there isn't one wideband controller to rule them all so to speak. Uh, Anyone who's followed us for a while will know that I'm a huge fan of CAN based wideband controllers, the reason being that this ensures the integrity of the data being transferred to the ECU, meaning that we can trust the numbers we're seeing. Having said that, if you've got an ECU that does offer an onboard Lambda controller, I would 100% be using that because it's going to save you some money. Specifically with your Link G4X example, I probably would have recommended that you go with Link's specific CAN based controller, their Link CAN Lambda unit. Now the reason for that is it gives you the advantages I just spoke about but there is actually a two way communication uh, with the link and it's CAN controller over the CAN network meaning that diagnostic data is being sent to the ECU. The ECU will also send RPM across to the CAN controller, the Lambda controller I should say, meaning that it won't run the heater element in the Lambda sensor until the engine is running and this can really extend your sensor life. Now if you've already spent your money on the Spartan controller, no big deal, nothing wrong with that but just uh, some information for the future. Anyway Rob, thanks again for your comments there, get in touch with the team with your t-shirt size and shipping details and we'll fire a fresh tea straight out to you. Alright that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 Dollars off the purchase of your first course, you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well, it never expires, you can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you 3 months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm, we dive into that topic for about an hour, if you can watch live you can ask questions and get answers in real time.